Blog Talk Radio. Hi guys, it's Richard Diaz, and before we get started with our show, I wanted to uh, tease you a little bit, let you know that we're going to do this show with Matt Fitzgerald. Yep, he's back. We're doing an interview with Matt, and he's going to talk about this new book he's releasing called How Bad Do You Want It? Before we get started, I want to remind you that the best place to find us is by visiting our new site, thenaturalrunningnetwork.com. TheNaturalRunningNetwork.com. Drop the the. It's just NaturalRunningNetwork.com. If you go there and subscribe to our episodes, you're going to find out you're going to get put on an A-list, which means that you can expect that we will every now and then toss you a free training tip or even some full-blown training programs. So uh, with no further ado, let's go ahead and get on with the show. Welcome to the Natural Running Network. We are brought to you by Mio, makers of the world's first strapless heart rate monitor sports watches, and MedHab, makers of RPM Squared, an innovative system of gait analysis that slips right into your running shoes. My name is Richard Diaz. I am your host. Are you a runner? Do you love to get out and challenge yourself? Running your first marathon or maybe caught the bug of obstacle racing? Well, sit tight because this is a show you just don't want to miss. I'm here with my good friend, Matt Fitzgerald. He is the author of so many books, it's difficult to laundry list them for you at the moment. And I know every time I speak with him that he has another book in the works. And so I reached out, and sure enough, we've got something cooking. So, Matt, say hello to our audience. Hello, audience. So, Matt, 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 how you been, man? I've been well. Um, traveling a bit, uh, writing, coaching. Uh, ran a marathon a couple weeks ago. Uh, usual, usual mix. I saw that you ran a marathon the other day. How'd that go? Um, it, you know, it went okay, all things considered. I, I hadn't run one in, in about two and a half years, um, just because I'm I'm pretty much always injured, and... I was still injured, but I decided, you know what, I'm just going to run the darn thing anyway. So it was it was interesting. I was usually, you know, you expect to be in pain in the last few miles of, of a marathon. I was in pain from the very first step. <laughs> and it was actually, it got better because once I was sore everywhere, my, my injury didn't bother me as much. Well, there you have it. That's the key, right? <laughs> don't be, yeah, like, yeah, you don't want any uh, ensuing pain. You want it to be, you know, instantaneous from the moment you step. Yes. No. Less people think I'm I'm crazy. I I had uh, uh, gone to see uh, an orthopedist about it, and he said I actually couldn't make it uh, any worse. Uh, it's kind of a tendonitis, uh, scar tissue type thing in a in a hip flexor. He said I if I could stand the pain, I wouldn't make it any worse. So that's why I went ahead and did it. I wasn't uh, I wasn't trying to do something foolish. So I want that to be clear. Okay. Well, we don't want to do anything foolish. No. Matt, since last I spoke to you, I've kind of delved off into um, working with a lot of these obstacle racing athletes. Have you been following this type of thing? You know, not so much. Obviously, you know, I'm I'm 
neck deep in endurance sports generally. So, you know, I'm aware of the trend. Um, it's just, it's not a big personal interest for me. I, I'm such a, I've said this before to you, I'm such a time geek that I really hate obstacles because they, <laughs> they slow you down. So it's, you know, to this point anyway, I've, I've never done one myself. I haven't tried to develop, you know, any, any kind of expertise on, you know, how to train for them. But, you know, I, I know they're popular. I know people that do them. And overall, you know, I'm, I'm very much in favor of, of the trend itself. You know, I think it's great. It just keeps endurance sports fresh when, when you know, new permutations like that come about. Well, I've been fascinated with it. I, I, I tell you, I've gotten involved, and I've been working with some of the athletes, and I've, I've uh, you know, I've attended some of these events. Uh, and mind you, I'm not doing any of the races, but I, I, I am absolutely a voyeur. I look at these obstacles and say, well, I can't get over that. I can't do that, and I can't mm-hmm. do that. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm excluded. And but it gives me a chance to really get a perspective of what they're going up against. And I look at it like a Rubik's cube. You know, it's a, what do we what do we need to do to solve this problem? And yep. uh, as a matter of fact, I just just now finished up uh, an inter- interview with uh, Ryan Atkins a few moments ago, who had won the Toughest Mudder last year and the year prior. And we're talking 24-hour event, five-mile course, and 22 obstacles, you know, going under barbed wire through mud, climbing hand over hand, jumping into a, a 38-foot drop into a lake, over and over and over again, uh, and ending up covering a hundred miles, which wow. which is just absolutely crazy in my mind. Um, yeah. So uh, for whatever it's worth, it's it you, it's from an endurance perspective, it's it's awe inspiring. Yeah, that's impressive. So um, talk to me about this this book that you've got in the works right now because I think it coincides very nicely with what I'm talking about right now. Well, uh, I've got two. So I, I assume you're talking about the one that's next in, in the queue for me, which is called How Bad Do You Want It? That's it. Yeah. Yeah, so that one is due out uh, at the, the end of the year. Um, and it, uh, well, the subtitle sheds a little light on what it's all about. The, the subtitle, until, until and unless the publisher changes it on me, is Mastering the Psychology of Mind Over Muscle. Um, so it's actually, um, it's largely narrative-based. Like uh, it, uh, if people who are familiar with Iron War, where I sort of tell a, tell a story about you know, a great sports rivalry between Dave Scott and Mark Allen and, and weave science into that, this one's similar, except it's uh, 12 different stories. Um, each with sort of a you know a, a sports psychology lesson uh, you know that I, I kind of tease out of, of the story um, and uh, you know in terms of the science in there it's real new stuff I believe that you know the, this brain revolution that's happened not just in endurance sports but in psychology and uh, human sciences generally has has kind of been a game changer and to me it has a lot of implications for um, how we approach endurance sports, and I saw the need for a, a new psychology that it was really endurance sports specific. Because, you know, you know, marathons, obstacle races, triathlons, all those things—they're so different from basketball or what have you. You know, just it's all about suffering for us. <laughs> right. And and that that you know, previously sports psychology was just way too generalized, and it was 
too, uh, to me, just it, it, it was just, uh, it was 50 years behind. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a, a neuroscientist or anything like that myself, but I've had a keen interest in this area for a long time. Um, as you know, brain training for runners sure. is one of mine, and, and the Iron War gets in, into that. So that's why, you know, this book is, uh, uh, you know, addresses, I, I think, a need um, and takes advantage of some of the exciting stuff that, that we've been learning about, the brain's role in endurance performance. Um, and then, because I can't help myself, I, I, I love... I love the stories of great athletes as examples of you know, role models for the rest of us. I think, you know, they are that in terms of how to train. They are that in terms of uh, diet. And I think they also are that in terms of uh, modeling, you know, a strong mental game. You, know, you can't succeed at the highest level of these sports with a B-plus mental game. No, you sure can't. You know, it's interesting that you that you bring that up because this is very close to the same type of um, – uh, offering that Travis Macy just put out. Do you know Travis Macy? Yeah, um, he actually I, he gave me the opportunity to read an advanced copy of his book uh, Ultra Mindset, right. and uh, I think I've got a blurb on on the front or back cover or inside there somewhere. But I, I really liked it. I thought it was, I thought he did an excellent job with that. Yeah, you know, and uh, I've I've interviewed him a few times, and and you know we've actually um, you know just to kind of back up and tell you a little story we. I got invited to go on this uh, Spartan cruise, which was to the Bahamas, where they had a, a, a sprint race on this private island, and it was a $50,000 purse that these guys were vying for, and they, uh, I don't know you know, what words I offered up to get them to be excited about me being there, but they, <laughs> they, they gave me a, a trip out there and allowed me to invite some folks, um, and you know, I thought about it just when I, when I wrote you, yes, I should have called you. Um, yeah, but anyway, uh, I, I invited Travis Macy, and he came out, and actually I brought Charlie Engel out, and uh, Michael Wardian brought him out, and, you know, uh, so it was interesting that, you know, here's a guy that his whole game is ultra, and it is the case also with Michael Wardian, who really is a pretty narrow guy, you know, I don't want to say skinny, <laughs> but he, you know, he's... He's got the body of a guy that runs a whole lot. Right. And, you know, here they both were faced with doing an obstacle race that's a 5K with all this upper body obstacles that they had to do with a sprint. And Travis actually did pretty well. I was really imp- – actually, both of them did very well, uh, surprisingly enough, especially since Wardian could not do any upper body strength exercise and ended up doing 130 burpees, I think it was, uh, over the course of the race. Um, so – uh, Travis's point, as you know, is he he doesn't look at himself as you know a stellar athlete. He he talks about his capacities to be able to do what he does because of his mental game. Yep. So so that's in that coincides very nicely with what you're talking about. So give me a, give me a sense of the direction of the book. Are you are you looking at anecdotal uh, information in respect to um, they're able to accomplish this because of this, or are, is it deal points on what we need to do in order to get our game up? Well, it, it really begins with the, the new science. Um, and I guess you know, the easiest way to wrap your head around it is uh, to contemplate this question. Why are endurance sports hard? We all know they're hard, but what is the essence of what makes them hard? Um, you know, there's a new answer to that question, actually, and I think it's the, the right answer, which is that um, 
uh, you know, if I ask that question to a, a bunch of people who aren't familiar with, with the relevant new science, they might say, well, just because there's, there's a lot of pain involved or because you have to deal with high levels of fatigue. Um, all of those things are, are part of the mix, but the essence of why endurance sports is hard is, um, is something called perceived effort or perception of effort. Um, when you are really suffering and, you know, tempted to, to bonk in any type of endurance race, um, the reason is because you are experiencing, experiencing an extremely high level of perceived effort, which is a distinct perception. It is a thing unto itself that is uh, indirectly influenced by fatigue, but it is not the same as fatigue. Um, it has certain similarities to pain, but pain has its own very precise definition, and, and perception of effort is not that. So it's a relatively new concept in terms of actually being, op- being able to sort of figuratively open up our skulls, peer inside the brain, and see exactly what that perception of effort is and the various factors that influence it. Uh, and what's neat about it is that, you know, the mind and the body have, have con- historically been treated as separate, but they're really not. And, and perception of effort is one of those way, areas where you see how that, that partition that separates mind and body is a false one, because perception of effort can be influenced and manipulated by purely psychological factors. For example, if you're extremely anxious before you start a race, you'll experience a higher level of perceived effort at the same level of exercise intensity. But it's also very much responsive to physical factors. In fact, the only reason training works is because it makes exercise at any given intensity feel easier. If it simply made you physically fitter but didn't change that relationship to perceived effort, you couldn't actually access your increased physical capacity because you couldn't, you couldn't handle the suffering that it would take to access that increased physical capacity. So it really is, you know, I hate to oversell it, but perception of effort really is everything. Um, the, the way I phrase it in the introduction to the book is uh, an athlete, an endurance athlete cannot improve except by altering his or her relationship with perceived effort. Um, so it's kind of it's kind of the nub, um, and that's something that most people, I guess, don't really know yet. Um, and uh, and so that's really what this book is is trying to teach. And it uses a lot of narrative because people glaze over when you throw too much neuroscience at them. So I like to <laughs> yeah. I like to I like to lead with story and show because uh, that's where the rubber meets the road anyway. It's like when you are in, in the middle of a race, you have to cope. You know, your body is what it is. Your body has what it has. But getting to the finish line in, in the shortest amount of time possible is all about coping. And that happens on an experiential level. That's what you really have control over at that point. Um, so the stories really help because they, they, they make it concrete. If you see how a great athlete overcomes you know, problems that are familiar to every athlete, um, that sort of makes the, the science more understandable uh, it makes that, that those uh, successful coping strategies that the elites model for us e- easier to, for us to replicate. So there's a there's a quote that comes to mind, um, and I think it was like on some kind of promotional poster or something that it, it suggests that if you think you can, you're right. If you think you can't, you're right. In essence, that's yep. what you're telling me, right? Yeah, I mean, that, I think that that's a- absolutely true. Yeah. So you and, and I think uh, that probably has much to do with what Noakes has been talking about, right? Uh, in respect to the central governor theory, and I've heard him say on more than a couple occasions that your the your 
Manifest destiny occurs when you put your foot on the line and what your thought processes are before you begin an event. Yeah. So, yeah, Noakes is really kind of the, the, the pioneer. He was, he was the first person who, who – he was the guy who really started this conversation. Um, and, and now there's, it, what's exciting is that there are a lot of researchers uh, who are really interested in this area – um, one of them, actually, uh, a fellow named Sam Wellamar Cora, his name's all over Iron War. Well, there's one chapter that focuses on, on his research, but Marcora actually uh, has written the foreword to, to my, my book that's coming out. Um, and and he, he, a lot of his work is, is kind of even taking the ball even further from where uh, Tim Noakes took it. Because, you know, Tim, he, he could sort of stayed at sort of a, a general paradigm level, whereas some of the, the next generation people are actually figuring out, they're, they're actually studying the brain in, in detail and, and figuring out exactly how all this stuff works, and are also, you know, which is probably more relevant to the interests of, of everyday athletes, they're also trying to identify specific ways, you know, practical things that you can do to manipulate perception of effort in ways that are performance enhancing. Well, that was going to be my next question. Um, it, what, what if any are there? Are there triggers that um, people can tie into to help them to to develop this uh, this newfound perception so that they can get past some of the hurdles in these events? Yeah. So uh, an effective coping skill is really any behavior, thought, or emotion that alters perceived effort in a favorable way, and and that list is literally infinite. For example, you know, you could, you could, uh, you know, be in the middle uh, of a race and struggling, and you could just latch onto a thought that is completely personal and based on your individual past experience, your biography, and it's like a lifeline to you. Just some kind of, you know, thought that helps you out, or, or some very, very individual motivation that that allows you to tolerate a higher level of perceived effort than you could otherwise, and that would be a coping skill that couldn't possibly work for anyone except you because it's entirely based on your personality and experience. So I want to emphasize that this list of things that could, that could work is, is infinite, and that's part of the journey. Uh, each of us as an athlete, to a certain degree, is on his or her own. Obviously, in the book, I don't emphasize the, that individual stuff because I'm, I'm trying to focus on you know, the heavy lifts or the, the low-hanging fruit, the, you know, the coping skills that tend to work very well for a lot of people uh, uh, to overcome, you know, the, the most common barriers to performance. Um, so one of them, you know, just to, to pick one sort of randomly, is um, an external focus of attention. Uh, so there's, you know, really interesting research showing that uh, the more your, your conscious attention is focused internally, the, more, the higher your perceived effort is when you race, and the more your um, attention is focused not on you, but on what you're doing, which is external, the lower perceived effort is at, at, at any given intensity. So when you're racing, you don't want to be focused on yourself. You want to be focused on the task. Uh, and if you are, um, anything you can do to externalize your focus in a task-relevant way is going to help you perform better. In fact, the essence of choking in endurance sports is thinking too much about, about yourself. You know, I think that was something that uh, that Travis spoke about a little bit in his book and one of the deal points, and I don't remember exactly how he, he phrased it, but it's exactly what you're talking about. And, and uh, you basically take the onus off yourself 
and just kind of dilute the the fears or the anxieties you have by just tossing your mindset off into the things that you're either doing or surrounding yourself with, right? Yeah. So, you know, it can be as simple as um, there was one study that, that kind of highlights this whole thing that involved uh, cyclists. Um, in, there were, it, well, most of these experiments involve putting people on stationary bikes because it's easy to control. So there was one experiment where they put cyclists on stationary bikes and had, had them do a tri- time trial in each of three different conditions. There was a, they had a screen in front of them in all three. In one of the conditions, the screen was blank, so it wasn't providing any kind of stimulus other than just being there and blank. In another one, the cyclists were able to watch an avatar representing their own progress toward completing, completing the time trial. And in a third one, they were able to watch an avatar representing themselves competing against an avatar representing a sort of well-matched rival. And the, the purpose of uh, you know, having these different three different screen conditions is that it tended to focus the athlete's attention more and more externally. When the screen was blank, they had nothing to stimulate themselves outside themselves. When they were able to fo- focus on their progress through that avatar, their attention was more externalized. And when they were in competition, albeit a virtual one, their attention was even more externalized. And there were big differences in perceived effort and performance in the three. So they, their attention was most external in that virtual competition uh, circumstance, and their perceived effort was lower, and their performance was higher. So again, it's not you don't want to be making up shopping lists um, or doing anything irrelevant. It's so you want to get your attention outside of yourself, but in a task relevant way. And co- competition is one of several ways you can do that. You know, even just paying attention to relevant performance feedback you know actually you know monitoring your pace and and time and distance covered and performance that is is a task relevant way of externalizing your focus of attention as well so among those three stimuluses that i kind of got my attention on this um where there's your effort then there's your effort against a competitor and then your uh your perception of how soon the finish line is um did how did the people that uh, or the uh, subjects that, that were doing the test fare when they were seeing this perception of it's soon to be over? Was that was that greater performance enhancement there, or how did that shake out, or if you even know? Well, uh, perception of effort in any kind of time trial increases linearly from start to finish. So, um, it, well, as long as it's a familiar task, so that pacing is is is. Um, close to optimal so you know you start off low and you just see a you know an upward sloping line and you know right at the point of finishing perceived effort reaches the the you know the maximal point um so that that's that's in any sort of circumstance um so what what happened in this study is that that line it had it had a slightly steeper slope um when they were in virtual competition, and their attention was focused um, outside themselves. And what that, and the reason was, they were able to tolerate a higher level of perceived effort. Um, but actually, I have it backwards. They, so there are some studies uh, where they will, it'll, yeah, the effect is to increase maximum perceived effort tolerance. And then there are others where it lowers the, the level of effort you're experiencing at any given level of output. Uh, so. So rewind what I just said. And in this study, it was actually it, it, it made the slope shallower. 
So at any given, they still can tolerate the same maximum level of perceived effort when they're in virtual competition, but along the way at any given pace, um, their, their effort level is lower, which just gives you the opportunity to, in, in, you know, if, if you go from an eight-minute mile, go to running, if an eight-minute mile goes from being kind of hard to kind of easy, you're not just going to take it easier and stay at an eight-minute mile pace. You're going to run faster, right? <laughs> if you can get away with it. Yeah, take advantage of it. Um, so that's what happened in this particular study. But that slope is almost always linear unless you pace yourself poorly and you max out your perceived effort before you get to the finish line, and that's that's called hitting the wall. Wow. Okay. So what what I got from that was that if uh, if you have a competitor in your sights and your focus is more on him than it is on yourself, then your capacity to produce work should be greater even though the effort may seem less because your perception is no longer on yourself. Is that pretty much it? Yeah, I mean, we perceived effort determines how fast we go. You know, you, you race by feel. You know, yes, you can use, you can use you, know, uh, you know, pace information or power information on a bike to, to you know, fine-tune and adjust your pace or even to determine what pace you set out at at the beginning. But ultimately, we all race by feel. You know, it's just, it's just that internal perception. Um, and, and so, you know, all, all things being equal, if, if you have a certain maximum tolerance, then, you know, if your effort at any given pace feels easier, that simply allows you to go faster. Um, take something like, you know, caffeine. Caffeine works, uh, you know, people used to believe it must do something like to help you burn fat better or something, but that's not it. It works entirely on the brain. Caffeine is in performance enhancing in the endurance context because it makes exercise feel easier. So if you do, say, a 10K running time trial on two occasions, one time you don't take caffeine first, the other time you do, um, you're going to, in both, in both time trials, with and without caffeine, you're going to max out at the same level of perceived effort. It's just when you've taken caffeine before, you're running faster at that maximum level of, of perceived effort that you're willing to, to tolerate. Um, so you just, when anything that makes exercise feel easier, you just take advantage of it by running faster. And I mentioned earlier, training works the same way. Uh, you know, just training increases your physical capacity. Here's what perceived effort is. Perceived effort is your conscious awareness of how hard your brain is working to drive your muscles. So picture your brain as, uh, as a horseman and your body as the horse. And your brain whips the, <laughs> whips the horse to make it go faster. If you get fitter, you don't have to whip the horse as hard in order to make it go at a desired speed. So your brain doesn't have to work as hard, and, and so you, you know, any given level of exercise effort feels easier. Huh. So no matter what enhances performance, it actually all does it in the same way, by manipulating perception of effort. So when you're running this marathon, and the first step you took, you were in pain, did you start putting this, uh, this, these theories to task and, and start trying to, um, you know, wave at the crowd or whatever to get your mind off the pain? Yeah, well, that, that's different, though, because, you know, pain is not perceived effort. So, you know, pain can be a significant factor in, especially, you know, the longer you go, you know, um, you know like a, a short, say, a 5K race, you experience a lot of strain but not a lot of pain. In a marathon, toward the end, you experience a lot of pain, but... 
But that is still not the essence of what's limiting you on a perceptual level. Perception of effort is what's limiting you. So when I ran that marathon, you know, I was just still really, you know, the pain was the pain. Either I could deal with that as a separate issue or not. But what I was focused on from a pacing perspective was my effort. It's just like, you know, really the perception of effort is how hard you feel in a global sense you're working at a given time. Um, so, you know, suppose you, you, you sprint for 10 seconds up a steep hill. From the very first step of that all-out uphill sprint, you, you're, you feel you're working as hard as you can, right? Well, that's actually exactly the same perception you'll have in the last mile of a marathon. If you take away the pain and the thirst and any other perception, if you just numb all that stuff and leave only perception of effort, even though you're running much slower in the marathon because fatigue has tired out your body so that your brain, the horseman, has to whip the body just as hard in the last mile of a marathon, even though you're running much slower as it has to whip that horse in the first step of an all-out sprint. It's exactly the same perception, even though one of them it hits immediately one second into an all-out effort, the other it takes three hours to get to that effort because you have to tire out your body until your brain is working just as hard it's exactly the same perception it's just any any athlete can answer that question it's you know how close to your limit you feel you are right now your limit of how hard you're able to push that is what on an experiential level that's what perception of effort is Hmm. so getting back to the uh, the title of the book how bad do you want it now i would think that 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 conjures up the thought of uh almost comparative analysis it's almost like um, I want it more than you, and it's obvious because of the amount of work I'm willing to do in order to take it away from you. Is that I- inappropriate? No. I mean, you know, the, the title is just, you know, I, I chose the title because that's that's actually where the whole thing started. Just that title leapt into my head. And it actually came from an experience when I was at the USA Track and Field Championships, and I was watching the women's 5,000 meters and a teammate of one of the women who was running in that race uh, shouted out to her in the, you know, the, the crucial second-to-last lap of the race, how bad do you want it? <laughs> and, uh, you know, everyone is familiar with that, that question. And that really speaks, but it's, it's, I guess, a slightly misleading title in the sense that it doesn't really globally encompass everything that, um, you know, this new psychology is about because how bad do you want it is a question about motivation, right? It's like, how motivated are you uh, to give your best effort? And motivation is huge. It's probably, you know, the single most powerful coping skill you can bring into any type of endurance race in, in order to maximize your performance. But it's, it's not the only one. Um, but that's, that's really the, that's what that question is all about, just how motivated are you? Because all else being equal, the more motivated you are, to do your best, the, the, the higher uh, your maximum threshold of, of perceived effort, you know, what you're willing to top tolerate will be. The psychologists, they, they call it potential motivation. It's just when you go into a race, there's a certain limit that you're, that you're willing to tolerate, and it's not the same for every athlete, and it's not, not even the same for the same athlete in different circumstances. We've all had that experience where you're mo- more motivated for one race than you are for another or at one point in your athletic career than you are in another. And the more motivated you are, 
the more you're going to, going to be willing to suffer, the more you, you're willing to suffer, the better you will perform, all else being equal. Wow. Okay, so I'm going to change gears for a second, and it's a complete 180 here. But I've been wanting to talk to you about this, and I wanted to use a format where we could share these thoughts together on this on this podcast, um, because you have such a long and storied background in diet analysis and uh, you know uh, endurance um, feeding uh, for for performance. And so, of late, I've run into some conversations about this new theory of fat app. Fat adapted diets. I know you've heard this. Oh yeah. I wanted to get your your take on it. I mean, uh, you're familiar with this faster study, I believe it was. Yep. So I know you looked at this. You had to have, and 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 I know you've got some opinion on it. And I'm just wondering if you'd share it with me. And 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 you probably do a better job explaining it than I will. So uh, can you begin by just kind of giving kind of a global. This is what it me. This is what this is all about, and and what your take is on it. Right. So the the basic idea is that um, there are two major fuel sources that the muscles draw upon during endurance exercise: fat and carbohydrate. Um, and those uh, who favor a an approach of, of maximizing fat adaptation. They, they believe that um, the more you can enhance your muscle's fat-burning capacity, uh, the more raw endurance you'll have because fat is, an, is a, an effectively unlimited fuel source for the muscles, whereas carbohydrate is a much more limited fuel source. So if you can really increase your, your muscle's ability to derive energy from fat, you'll be able to go farther, and also you'll be able to... Um, you won't be as reliant on supplementing with carbohydrate during during races. Uh, so if you have a sensitive stomach and you tend to throw up your 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 energy gels, <clears throat> you know this could help you out in that regard, where you can you're uh, able to supply more of the energy you need to get to the finish line from the fat that's already inside your body and don't need to take in as much externally. So in terms of like how do you do that, um, you know. Any sort of endurance training is going to just naturally increase your uh, body's ability to uh, burn fat. Um, but also you can manipulate, manipulate, uh, excuse me, manipulate diet to further enhance that capacity. So the idea is the more fat you eat, the more your muscles will tend to rely on, on fat to supply energy. Uh, well, so what, so so what? Let, let me just kind of interrupt you for a second. Yep. So what I gathered from this, and, and you know the players in this, there's a couple guys who were spouting off pretty heavily about you know the, the benefits of being in a fat adapted diet, where in, in essence what they've done is restricted carbohydrate intake and then put themselves to task very very heavily repeatedly, and then their their energy sources were always either highly fat or high protein uh, energy sources. And they're, they're suggesting that through this suffer fest that they put themselves through, that they train their bodies to access fat stores more readily and spare the glycogen stores. And in essence, they don't need to to feed during these long and arduous events, such as ultra marathons. And I, I just, um, I, I don't know. I've just had a hard time buying that that that's even a a, a possibility. And and, and, and it conjures up a lot of different thoughts in respect to how people's bodies respond to energy to begin with. Some people, 
um, you know, the, the in, insulin sensitivity and all this kind of stuff plays into it. But I, I just, you know, I guess what I'm getting at and what I would, the reason I, you know, turned you completely away from one topic <laughs> in, into this, into this other topic is because I wanted to squeeze this in and get your feedback on it because I know that you, you, deep down there's an opinion you have about whether it's a good idea or not. And I, I, as a matter of fact, I had this conversation with Joe Frail too. Because in his recent book, which was uh, Faster Over 50, I don't know if you saw that book, but uh, he talked about it in brief. He he talked about, you know, these different paths that that endurance athletes may take. But he he, he just kind of, um, he stayed in the middle of the road and he he, seemed like he refused to make an opinion one way or the other about it, other than what he said was, if it's working for you, great. If it's not working for you, don't, (laughs) you know. But I wanted to get your take on it. Yeah, so, you know, in, in my work as a sports nutritionist, actually, you know, working with athletes one-on-one, um, I do not advocate that approach. Um, so that's, that's the short answer is that um, you know, it's, not, it's not something that I encourage athletes to do. Well, and, and I guess the, the reason would be, uh, I mean, the, the logical conclusion for that response would be that, if you're hoping to perform at le- higher uh, levels of intensity, you're going to need to dip into your sugar stores, and you need to you develop some lactate tolerance, and you need to you need to be up there. Otherwise, you you, you at, well at the end of the day, I just don't think you're going to manufacture sugar from uh, or, or or completely access your fat stores to supplement high intensity work, right? Yeah, that's true. Um, you know what what you can do on a on a high fat diet is um, increase what's known as the crossover point, which is the the intensity at which um, you you start burning more carbs than fat because no matter how quote unquote fat adapted you are at the highest intensities of exercise, you're burning all carbs, and there's nothing you can do about that. That's your body uh, has to work that way because uh, carbs can supply energy much, much more quickly than fat can. Fat is a more efficient um, en- uh, energy source, but carbs are a much faster energy source. Um, so you have no choice if you're, you know, if you're running at um, running, cycling, whatever, at at higher intensities, uh, you need to be really good at burning carbs. Um, and and there's, yeah, there's there's no way to change that. Well, and then at the end of the day, um, if you were to be on a diet such as that and everything seemed to be pretty copacetic as long as your intensity wasn't picked up and you found this uh, this managing point where, you know, the, the, your pace relative to distance, relative to time under stress, whatever, you, you found a way to cope, where the disconnect's going to be is when you have to bump it up and you got to get into some intensity and it, you're not going to teach your body to store more carbohydrate, and there's not going to be enough carbohydrate likely to be available as needed when you do bump bump it up. Uh, so I don't. Th- it's not like you're going to store a bunch more sugar, and you know your limitation obviously enough is. I, I think that there's there's a certain amount of repayment that occurs when you dip into those glycogen stores, right? You start to store more of it, and if you're not dipping yeah. into it, you, you're 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 going to run shy, right? Yeah, um, you know the, the essence of the of the problem with the the uh, <laughs> what I in my 
more uncharitable moments called fat fetishism <laughs> is that it's, it's reductionistic. It's just the latest brand of reductionism in endurance sports where the mistake people make is to isolate one small piece of this large and complex puzzle that is the physiology of endurance performance and, and, and treat that piece as the be-all and end-all. You know, people did it with VO2 max. You know, it all you know, everything should be about trying to maximize your your uh, your VO2 max. It was done with uh, you know lactate threshold. It's done with now fat adaptation, fat adaptation. But the thing is, everything matters, and ultimately, only one thing matters, and that's performance. And you need to address all the pieces of the puzzle in order to to maximize performance. So you know what what some of the the work that Louise Burke has done one of the early people to study fat adaptation and she gave it up because she decided you know what it doesn't it doesn't affect the only thing that really matters which is performance if it, if, if, if it affects it in any way it makes it worse but what she found and another guy a Canadian researcher uh, Trent Stellingworth found is that the only way you can truly maximize your muscles ability to burn fat is by also diminishing their ability to burn carbs. <laughs> exactly. So, so this is what happens, and it's not, it's not just about fat burning. It's when you, when you take any piece of the puzzle and make it the be-all and end-all, if you put all your chips on that, you're going to lose commensurately in some other part of the puzzle. You don't want to do that. You need to, like, like I said, everything matters, and ultimately only one thing matters, performance. You know what? That was well said, I, and, I, and I agree with you 100%. I think that there's... Where we get into trouble, and I think it's manufactured by the want to earn, and you know we we suffer this in the endurance world. You know, I, I, we suffer this in the manufacture of running shoes. We suffer this in in nutrition, and where someone wants to take a, a tangent and create their own subcategory uh, and be something unique and different. And generally, if they get enough attention towards it, they they can make a lot of money from it. And I think that that's that's part of the problem is is that as you suggested, it's not one thing or another. And, and you know, here this is coming from someone that has made a living doing VO2 testing for the past you know nearly 20 years. I to this day am very much willing to say that it isn't one thing. It's 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 a multitude of things, and you have to look at things globally, and then you have to take them bits and pieces at a time based on what we know. And a lot of it's experiential. You 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 learn from what you do, and you. I like to look at everything. I like to look at all the data, as much information as I can gather to make my decisions moving forward. But uh, there are some things that I think are are relatively irrefutable. I mean, which is the way our body uses energy is not going to change in much drastic measure. So, in other words, you're not going to turn yourself into this, uh, since I got a lot of fat, I'm just going to use that. <laughs> right? Because <laughs> right. yep. if that were the case, I would be a world champion here today. <laughs> so, anyway, yep. that's that was that was what I wanted to gather from that from that little bit. And so you you had mentioned that there's you know we're going to spend a few more minutes here, but you had mentioned that there's also another a book in the works. Yeah, and actually this bears on a bit of uh, our most recent topic. So the one I'm working on, hopefully for release next year, uh, is called the Endurance Diet. It is um, 
it's, I'm basically studying the, the core commonly shared uh, eating habits of the world's best endurance athletes in all disciplines, from rowing to cross-country skiing and everything in between, and all over the world on all five inhabited co- continents. Um, you know, despite uh, a lot of superficial differences in specific food choices, um, for example, Ethiopian runners eat a lot of teff, um, you know, rowers from New Zealand, not so much. But underneath those superficial di- differences, it's remarkable how similar the diets of all uh, elite, endurance, elite endurance athletes are. I mean, the pros, the people who are going to the Olympics. Um, and that, that's no accident uh, because uh, there's been <clears throat> sort of a, a global generations-long um, uh, trial and error process going on. It's happened with training and it's happened with diet as well, where as the level of competition rises and rises and rises, uh, athletes, no matter how talented they are, no matter how hard they work, can't get away with inferior methods of preparation, again, whether it's diet or training. So we've gotten to this point where a convergence has occurred and only what works on the level of diet has, is viable these days. Um, what's interesting is that while all elite endurance athletes basically eat the same way, recreational endurance athletes are all over the place because they haven't undergone this, they haven't been in the same crucible of extremely unforgiving performance standards. So you've got this weird uh, you know, bifurcation where elite endurance athletes have figured it out. <laughs> this is how you eat to perform your best. And recreational endurance athletes are utterly confused, you know, just hopping on board with fad diets or just throwing up their hands and going to McDonald's or, or what have you. So to me, there's a real need there. It's like, hey, forget the re- reductionistic science, which can be used to convince anyone of anything. It's like, why don't we just copy, monkey see, monkey do, <laughs> copy the, the, the real world proven most effective way to eat for endurance performance. Well, you know, it's interesting you say that because that's kind of what's going wrong is that the monkey see, monkey do. Uh, they're not looking at it from an, an analytical perspective. They're looking at their heroes, and you get some, some nut job that, that suggests that he's doing something completely contrary to what the rest of the world is doing, and then everybody draws attention towards it, and, and then they end up doing it too. And I've seen this more than a couple different occasions, not just with diet, but for training principles. And I mean, I'll give you another great example, and I won't go into a rant about this because we don't have time. But I've been <laughs> seeing a lot of guys with these sport masks on, which, you know, they're they're you know out in the field uh, in the obstacle racing world, they're they're you know doing burpees and lifting weights and running stairs and things like this. This uh, you know hypoxic mask on, and. Yeah. You know, I mean, again, that's a show unto itself. But um, and I get I get the question asked of me a lot whether they think it's a good idea or not, and and I and I keep telling them yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so there you go. I mean, these people go off into these tangents and, and it causes problems. So I'm, I'm I'm very eager to see what that book looks like. And I want you to leave us with this on the topic of that book on endurance diet. If you were to nail it and, and put the substrates into percentages of the average professional endurance athlete, what does it look like? Uh, so we're talking about macronutrients? Yes. Well, it's, um, you know, allow me to say, first of all, that most of these people aren't keeping count. <laughs> and that's, that's interesting in itself, but um, they're, they're all on high-carb diets. Okay. Um, 
Yeah. And so how how high is relative to the type of sport we're talking about? Yes, um, and, and you know if if the if the whole fat mania has ha- had any effect on what the the actual professionals are doing, it has gotten them to to periodize their their carbohydrate intake a little bit. So by and large, they're all on high carb diets. But for example, in the off season, uh, they might uh, bring the carb intake down quite a bit because they're not training as hard. Uh, they're trying to manage their their weight uh, without necessarily going hungry. So there's a little bit of nuance to it, but as a general rule, carbohydrate intake is is fluctuating with training load. So the harder they're tra- training, the more carbs they're eating. Now, see that? Aren't you glad that I brought up this whole fat adaptation? Yes, I am actually. <laughs> I, I thought, what are you, you probably you're probably thinking to yourself, why did he just take me off this topic and go completely left turn? But in <laughs> fact, there it was. My infinite yeah. wisdom, I knew that I needed to bring you towards this because, and I didn't even, you know, for everybody listening, I didn't even know what that second book was about. So Yeah, you just handed it to me. You know what I mean? I get good at this every time I do it. I'm impressed. Yeah. Well, look, Matt, I appreciate you uh, taking the time to come on with us. And people can find your books most readily by visiting your website, which is? org. There you have it. I uh, highly recommend the books. And, you know, my favorite still to this day is Iron Wars. However, the cookbook was off the hook. And, I, you know, I told you I love the glossy pictures. And, um, you know, you and Georgie Fear did an amazing job with that cookbook. So um, I, I highly recommend your, your site and your books. And, again, thank you so much for coming on with us and I want you to have an amazing week, buddy. Thank you, Richard. Always a pleasure. Yeah, okay. Take care, man. Well, friends, it's time to bring another show to a close. Be sure and tune in to us next week. We've got a lot of great content in store for you. I want you to tell your friends to check us out. You can always find us on Facebook. Simply go search the Natural Running Network. Drop us a message. I'd love to learn more about you and the things you do. And until then, you have an amazing day.